to our eighth episode of Two Tankers and a Cat. We're your host, Charlie. And I'm Russell. And Lightning the Cat is literally laying in front of me, passed out. Oh, yeah. She's nuts as all get out tonight, man. Um, I will tell you, we uh, experimented with some catnip with the cat. I had brought it over, and Russell's like, I don't know if she'll take the catnip. Yeah, she did. Yes. <laughs> I have never seen anything like that in my life. I know I've experimented with previous cats that I've owned, and she just loves it. Um, Maybe she's uh, got some Jamaican blood. or <laughs> If you know where we're going with that. Tell you know. us about Jamaica. <laughs> I've been to Jamaica. And, um, not a lot of tanks. Not a lot of not tanks, lot of tanks well, to see. Just leave it at that, huh? Yeah, yeah you can swim with sharks. So that, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you can actually well, you've got all your limbs, so I guess you probably didn't uh, do that excursion. Well, I didn't get in the water. I, told, oh. I patted my daughter on the back and said, hey, you want to go swim with the shark? She's like, daddy, no. And I'm like, yeah, get in there. I paid 50 bucks. <laughs> she had a good time. It, you can't actually do that. It's it's great. Yeah. Um, Russell, let's go over the key first key points. Uh, I know you've got some announcements and shout-outs. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just want to. Thank all those folks out there who's been downloading and, and listening to our podcast. You guys out there have no idea what that means to us. Um, we really love talking about tanks and armor and military history. And it's just incredible, the number of people. I mean, this is way beyond my expectation, I know, of the number of people that's downloading and, and listening. And a big shout out to especially those, I believe our biggest number of downloads is coming off of iTunes right now. If you are downloading it off of iTunes, please, please give us a like on there. Give us a five-star rating. I mean, the more stars you give, the higher that climbs up their list too, and the bigger we get. Well, we still have a bunch of, what, 100-calorie Milky Way bars? Oh, well, yeah. If you give us a five-star, we'll send you a Milky, there you bar, go. Milky Way hey, bar. Hey, don't be promising my Christmas candy, dang it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot. That gum you're hiding, <laughs> that'll come out of your pocket. So <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I also want to say that uh, Charlie here, my partner, he's been doing a really good job of getting the word out about the podcast. I guess you'd say he's going to be kind of the marketing guru out there of the podcast and and trying to get the word out that it's out there and i really think that's why a lot of the download numbers has been going up we're talking about numbers we had a 466 percent increase in it's international um we've got ireland um just all over the all over the world that's incredible and uh even texas yeah Texas. Which, which is basically its own separate country. Yeah, it could be international, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Texas kind of does what it yeah. wants to. Yeah. To our international people, if you've never yeah. been to Texas, go to Texas. <laughs> great barbecue, great state. Great state. But uh, huge flags. Home of, home of Fort Hood. Oh, yeah, Fort oh. Hood. Seriously, people, if you get a chance to go to Fort Hood, the people down there are amazing. Oh, you see man. the soldiers, they're all crisp, know, know their business, professional, and great, great tank displays. Great tank museums. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, we actually, this is kind of a funny deal for us. Um, 
we had went down to Fort Hood and we were walking around in front of one of the officer core bases and we're looking at tanks and of course you know me I'm sitting out there rolling around on tanks going oh I love tanks I love tanks <laughs> well a colonel wasn't or a captain I believe it's a captain yeah yeah, yeah. Ca- one of the captains walked out there and he's like uh guys what are we doing I'm like I'm just really happy to be around tanks he was very cool he wasn't out there to see who we were or you know see if we were terrorists I mean he was just like, oh, well, let me explain some of these tanks. This is a guy that stood up, walked out, introduced himself, and was professional and told us about the tanks and the tanks that he was driving. And uh, if you get down to Fort Hood, props to them guys. Yes, exactly. What's our episode today about? Uh, today's episode is going to be about the medium tanks, um, designated the T5, T5E1, and the T5E2. So these are the beginning of the medium tanks. Beginning, very beginning of the medium tanks, yes. So this is the grandpa for Lee and the Sherman? Lee and the Sherman, exactly. (laughs) Start this off. (laughs) I'm going to be honest, people. I know nothing about the beginning of medium tanks. Hey, we're all going to learn a lot right here. So stick with us and enjoy. The medium tank T5 was recommended to be developed on May 21st of 1936 by the U.S. Army Ordnance Committee. Uh, the approval of this recommendation initiated the program, which eventually led to the most widely produced tank in the United States history, the M4 General Sherman. Uh, although the appearance of the Sherman prototype was over five years away, it was a direct descendant of the medium T5 tank. Wow. And again, we keep saying we're going to do an M4 uh, episode or Sherman episode, but there really is so much. I mean. Yeah, there's so much. We don't want to rush it and, and leave anything out. I mean, we've got a lot to include with that. It, it's been in so many wars. Um, it, believe it or not, M4 was actually used in Desert Storm. Yep. And people are going to go, oh, you're crazy, you're crazy. We didn't use it. I'm like. No, we didn't, but the Iraqis sure. The Iraqis had one. Yeah, and we killed it. (laughs) (laughs) So we've got a lot to talk about with the M4s. It's coming. Just hope our folks out there has got a little patience, but we'll get there. Now, I did get a uh, little note from one of our uh, listeners in Cyprus, and he wanted to point out that sometimes that uh, when I say we – I should be using our allies, whether we're talking about Desert Storm or Korea or uh, World War II. When I say we, I I don't mean just Americans. I do mean our allies. Um, There was Irish in World War II, you know, that were in our allies. And we're not trying to offend anybody. But when I say we, I mean, you know, our allies. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Good point. I'm glad you brought that up because... So getting back to the T5, um, after the problems encountered with the convertible wheel or track vehicles, um, the T5 was a new effort to develop a tank meeting the service requirements specified by the infantry board. Um, If you remember back a couple episodes ago when we talked about the convertible wheel slash tracked vehicles, 
Was that um, the Christie? Christie. Yep. The Christie medium tanks. This was to kind of expand. The T5 was to kind of expand on that and and keep developing medium tanks. So basically they had the Christie light that they were looking at, but they wanted to upgrade to a medium tank. Yeah, that's exactly uh, right. All right, I understand now. A little bit bigger tank and... A little bit more oomph. Yeah. Um, essentially, the T5 was an enlarged version of the successful light tank designated the M2. The T5 used many of the same components, and it was intended to have greater protection and firepower than the M2. Now, I think that's so... You know, I've harped on this point before. We like interchangeable parts. And some countries, like the Germans, like their Panther stuff wouldn't fit on the Tiger. Yeah. And we were grabbing parts and just shoving them on because all our parts are, you know, pretty interchangeable. Interchangeable. That's a great thing. It is. I mean, yeah, when you just can grab something off of another tank and, and use it to fix what you're doing, shoot you out. It's, it's great. And especially when you're in the combat. Theater. So what was the weight limit on that thing? When they designed the T5, they actually wanted a weight limit of 15 tons. The infantry board actually imposed that limit, and that was actually to permit the tank units to operate over bridges found on our main primary highways in the United States. So, basically, they didn't want you know, to break any bridges or anything like that. And it since it's infantry support, that makes a yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, the first pilot vehicle designed to meet this weight limit was referred to as the medium tank T5 Phase One. Uh, two different arrangements of armament had been under consideration um, by the infantry board. Uh, the first arrangement mounted the main weapon in a turret with a full 360 degree traverse. Um, as in this medium tank T4, I mean, they kind of took it off of the, the T4. So they version. wanted a, th- a 360 turret. Yeah. Okay. That was important to them. Yes. Well, what was the second one? The second arrangement that they had proposed replaced the turret with a barbette as on the T4E1 having the appearance of a mobile pillbox. Okay, I can understand what they're thinking there, but I'd rather have the turret. I agree. Yeah, I want to I wanna be able to aim all the way around me. Uh-huh. A thirty caliber machine gun was placed in each of four rotors mounted in the sponsons at the corners of the fighting compartment. And you're probably not going to appreciate that without seeing a picture of it. And when we do put this episode out, I'll include several pictures not only of stuff that I find on the internet, but also pictures that I've personally taken of one of these to kind of give you an idea of how these 30 caliber machine guns were, were mounted. And there's some interesting stuff about these machine guns. Yes. We're going to get into them. We will get into that, yeah. Um, but, uh, again, that was down in Georgia at the... Fort Benning, Georgia at the open house, yeah. Excellent. Uh, the main armament was carried in a turret on top with the full traverse. Two 30 caliber machine guns um, were also fixed in the front armor plate for use by the driver. So the driver had access to, potentially he had access to the two 30 caliber machine guns that was installed in the front of it. 
Um, if you guys are hearing the train in the background, sorry. <laughs> we are train guys too, believe yeah, it or not. Yeah. Me and Russell have been to a few train rides and train. We enjoy trains. Oh yeah, we do. We do. And who knows? Someday we may do a tanks on train episode. Or armored trains. Armored train? Well, I know the Germans in World War II were using uh, trains to uh, do uh, rail guns. Oh, yeah, big, big time. Guns. Yeah, that was huge for them. So we could do that. Yeah. Um, provision was made for anti-aircraft mounts for two additional thirty caliber weapons. The turret was designed to carry the new high-velocity 37-millimeter anti-tank gun, then under development by the Ordnance Department. However... When the tank was delivered, a dummy gun was installed to simulate this weapon. In other words, they hadn't quite got, by the time the tank was delivered, they still hadn't perfected the gun, the 37mm anti-tank gun that they wanted to put in the turret. Uh, This was later replaced by an interim installation of twin 37mm guns that was to be replaced by the single high-velocity gun when it became available. So the tank we saw down in Georgia, didn't it have the twin 37s? Yes, it did. That that actually had the twins, yes. That's awesome. Yeah, um, believe it or not, the high-velocity gun um, never came to fruition, never occurred. They never did get it built and put in there. And the single T5 Phase 1 still carries, that they build still carries the twin 37s. And that's the one we saw, right? That's the one we've seen. Wow. Um, this actual particular tank is currently housed the U.S. Army Army Armor and Cavalry Collection there at Fort Benning, Georgia. T5 E1 medium tank with registration number W-30369 was on display at the open house we went to on Veterans Day of 2018. So it, it's still in existence today. And thank you to those folks down there for making that available. And I mean, Wow. If you guys are anywhere close to there and they have another open house, yes. Uh, do we have a link to the... Uh, yeah, we will have a link to that. And I'll, I'll guarantee you, I mean, in future podcasts, anytime we know that an open house is coming up, we will definitely advertise that too for them just to get the word out. Yeah. And we'd like to meet some of our viewers or listeners out there too. Yeah, yeah. Because we are going back. Oh, yeah. We will be back. It is that good of a deal so tank that they have there at fort benning the t5 e1 medium it was previously on display at the Patton museum at fort knox before they moved it down to fort benning so kind of give you an idea of been on display before so some of you may have seen it there at the the Patton museum before it went down to fort benning some of our old timers yeah some (laughs) of the old timers out there now if any of our old timers uh, have ever been out to fort knox and got a picture of this tank uh, feel free to send it to us We will definitely post it in our album. A number of minor modifications were made during tests of the T5 medium tank. One of the most incredible things that I've learned, one of the biggest modifications that they made, included the installation of a bullet deflector plates at both sides of the rear hole plate. And you may ask, why on God's green earth do you need bullet deflector plates at both sides of the rear hole plate. Well, these plates actually deflected the machine gun fire. Remember, you had two machine guns mounted on the back of the of the of this actual tank, and they were able to shoot at these plates, and that deflected the machine gun fire from the rear of the Sponson machine guns into the blind areas that was behind the tank, 
or into any hole or trench that the tank crossed. When me and Russ first saw this, I Russ was like, why are these plates here? And I'm like, man, I'm sure it's for mirrors. I'll tell you, I've never seen anything like it before. And then uh, Rob, the curator, um, says, uh, no, it wasn't for mirrors. They would shoot these plates. Let's say an enemy soldier got behind there to put a mine or a grenade or you know some kind of explosive on the back of the tank. They would shoot this deflector, and it would bounce down into the blind spots and machine gun whoever was back there. What a great plan. Oh, absolutely incredible idea. I mean, I never would have thought about anything like that before. Because everybody knows, you know, those blind spots and the tanks are usually the weakest and where the motor is and it's always in the back. Yeah. Good Lord. Yeah. And they're like, okay, you're back there, machine gun them. Exactly, exactly. And is, I mean, the... When you crossed over a trench, I mean, there may have still been enemy soldiers in those trenches that that were there to do harm to you. Um, Give us some specifications on the T5 Phase 1. Believe it or not, there was only one of these tanks that was produced. Um, It was a a prototype that never really was put into production of any kind. So, in other words, they were mainly used as testing, and we'll explain a little bit more of that later. The hull length... About 17 foot 3 inches, and the whole width about 8 foot 2 inches wide, with a height of about 9 foot high. Well, that's almost as tall and as wide as the Lee. As the M3 Lee, yes. So basically, it, this is like the grandfather of Lee, yeah. and then the great grandfather of the M4. Exactly, yes. How, many, how much crew? Yeah, I had five crew members, which if you think about it, that was... Probably a step up from, you know, some of them we've talked about. Well, the Christie had, had, what, three? Yeah, I believe yeah. so, yeah. Light tanks were having three. So what kind of engine did it have? What kind of speed we're talking about? It had a Continental Radial seven-cylinder air-cooled engine, 250 horsepower. Not a lot there, but, hey, this was still still building up. Um, the max speed that they achieved was about 31-mile-an-hour road speed. All right. Yeah, that's fair. Well, in our previous episode, if you haven't heard it, you you need to go listen to this. The Lee had a max speed of, what, 25? Right around there. So what was the uh, range on that thing? Um, It had a maximum cruising range of about 125. Okay, so it could go distance. Yeah, pretty good distance. But my main thing, what kind of armor are they talking about? Well, that's not the great part. Yeah, the armor, uh, believe it or not, only ranged from about an inch to about a quarter inch, kind of in that area. Well, basically a little better than the light tank. Not yeah, much. not not a whole lot. But Well, that was pretty interesting. But like you said, I mean, this was the great-grandfather to the Sherman and grandfather to the Lee. To the Lee. So, wow. I mean, this prototype, I mean, it didn't go wasted by any long shot. They were out there looking to build the next best medium tank. This particular prototype i mean did what it was supposed to do amazing history there now that we've covered basically this prototype tank is there anything else you want to talk about i know last episode we were thinking about talking about some actual tank battles and stuff like that yeah i come across something interesting um just to kind of change course a little bit i know we've mainly picked one tank and talked about you know that tank for most of the episode i kind of wanted to change course and talk about a tank battle i mean but it's just an article that i run across in an episode of the stars and stripes uh, magazine 
Now, Stars and Stripes is the U.S. military's newspaper, basically. Newspaper, okay. magazine that they put out. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, who wrote this? Uh, it was written by Stephen Beardsley, who's employed with the Stars and Stripes publication. This particular article, it actually goes in and talks about the Battle of the Medina Ridge. This particular battle, um, it go down as one of the largest battles of the Operation Desert Storm, um, yet it wasn't much of a fight, believe it or not. Um, it only lasted a mere minutes. Uh, tankers with the U.S. Army 2nd Brigade, 1st Armored Division, needed a mere 40 minutes to pulverize an armored brigade of the Iraqi Republican Guard during the Battle of Medina Ridge. A display of technological superiority against a force many expected to be more formidable. Now again, um, we know we're trying to be sensitive to everybody. Uh, We know we have uh, some Middle Eastern uh, listeners and uh, we're not saying that they weren't brave or anything like that. Um, We're just saying this is history. This is what happened. This is basically, you know, what happened in this battle. Go ahead and tell us more, Russ. Uh, Yeah, the battle was brief. It was intense and it was one-sided, said Doug Woolley, a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel who led a platoon into the battle. Uh, It was one of the final punches of General Norman Schwarzkopf's left hook, a massive flanking attack against Iraqi forces near the Kuwait border. The tank crews of the 1st Armored Division had moved at a blistering pace through southern Iraq since crossing the Saudi border three days earlier, meeting little resistance along the way. Now, if you guys haven't studied uh, uh, Storm and Norman's uh, battle plan on that, basically the Iraqis were almost positive they weren't going to come into Iraq. They thought they were going to come up on the beaches to Kuwait, good old Storm and Norman was like, mm, I'm not going to do what they're thinking. I'm going to come around and give them a left hook. And he did. After a small skirmish with Iraqi regular forces in the town of Al Busea, 2nd Brigade tankers were pushed forward in search of the Republican Guard, the elite branch of Iraq's military, and the Presidential Guard of the Iraqi President Saddam Hussein. The Republican Guard was equipped with Soviet made. T-72, and believe it or not, obsolete Chinese Type 69 tanks. It was experienced in desert tank battles from Iraq's recent nine-year war with Iran, but its forces were reeling from combat with the Americans when the battle took place on February 27th of 1991. Well, you got to remember, these Republican guards and these presidential guards that are in these T-72s and these uh, Chinese Type 69s were doing almost a trench warfare with the Iranians, and they weren't maneuvering a lot, and they were taught to, you know, go hull down with these tanks, which, and hull down, you know, stationary, you know, infantry support, they were pretty good, and we're not saying that yeah. these tanks were good, but against the Abrams that could shoot on the move doing, what, 50 miles an hour, <laughs> they're a little obsolete. Exactly, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, when you say hold down, did they actually bury into the into they, the sand? They actually did. That was yeah. one of their tactics. Yeah. Um, I will be talking about the Battle of Easting 73, and they would actually dig holes and drive their tanks down the hole where all you or you know, the whole part of the tank with only the turret showing up. Wow. And with the sandstorms and everything like that, 
it was hard to see them. Oh, and I can by imagine. the time you saw, you know, came up on them, they, they were aiming yeah. at you. Yeah. In getting back to this particular battle, in an effort to block the American drive and allow Iraqi forces to withdraw from Kuwait, the 2nd Brigade of the Guards Medina Division had dug in behind a small rise in the landscape, a ridge that would expose enemy tanks to their fire. So they're dug in yeah. in a tactically superior mm-hmm. you know, thing. So they, they're following a Soviet doctrine, and we're not saying that this was, was a bad thing. They took the high ground. They dug in. They were ready, unfortunately. Uh, though tactically sound, the scheme turned out to be both unlucky and unworkable against an advanced enemy, which was our allies. and Again, our allies yeah. and, and our Abram tanks. And our Abram tanks. Uh, Larry Porter, a former platoon sergeant, remembers cresting the ridge and finding more than a dozen Iraqi tanks in a staggered line and pointing away from his platoon. The Americans opened fire. Uh, we caught them looking in the wrong direction, he said. American forces enjoyed other advantages. They were using infrared imaging to identify targets on a hazy, rainy day, and most of the American tankers fired from distances close to 2,500 meters, which is well outside the range of the T-72. Again, here's another thing about technology. These guys were dug in. Um, They were where they were coming. They're like, hey, they're coming. They should be coming from this direction. Now, they did have their guns pointed in the wrong direction, but, again, they're set. It's a rainy day. They've got people out there with radios saying, hey, we're going to let you know when they're coming down. And all of a sudden, their tanks start exploding because we can see them with infrared. Don't have to, you know, don't have to look. We can see them. we got GPS, uh, laser targeting, and we're firing on the move at 2,500 meters away. They couldn't see us. Couldn't see you. And their tanks with their guns couldn't even begin to shoot yes. us. Well out of range. So, I mean, that's just incredible. The Iraqis could neither see nor reach the Abrams tanks lined up against them, said Tom Carhart, a former soldier who wrote about the 1st Armored Division experience in Desert Storm. At five kilometers, the Americans can see the urine stream of an Iraqi soldier peeing in the bushes and the Iraqi soldiers didn't know they were there. They didn't know they were there until their tanks started exploding. So we're not trying to laugh at this. No, no. But, we're not but, making light of it at all. But no. if you think about it, here's a poor guy, gets out of his tank. He's like, hey, I got to go. They're like, all right, go behind the bushes. So he's out there peeing, and our infrareds picking it up, and they're like, What's the enemy troops doing? Yeah. They're taking a pee break. (laughs) And then all of a sudden your tank explode. Well, at least you don't have to worry about, you know, peeing your pants. That's true. You've already got it all out. You've done your job already. Uh, Go ahead with the rest of it. Uh, The battle quickly turned into a shooting gallery as brigade tanks lined up to fire. Enemy turrets exploded as the armor-piercing rounds fired from the Abrams slammed into their targets. Woolley remembers one turret flying through the air and piercing the ground like a lollipop. So, the turret's fl- flipping through the air. The gun goes into the sand and sticks up and makes it look like it's a lollipop. Look, yeah, sticking up in the air. We laugh at this because, Gosh. you know, the description. Of course, we know there's some men in there. Oh, and yeah. They were doing their best to try yeah. and defend what they believed what they were right. But 
Still to see tank turrets sticking up in the sand. That's pretty funny. They had American Age 64 Apache helicopters and A-10 Warthogs fighter jets um, quickly joined in the fight, further tipping the scales. Oh, can yeah. you imagine? <sighs> if you guys don't know about the A-10 Warthog, oh, there's wow. tons of videos. Yes. The Warthog is a tank killer. Exactly. Just, and be caught out. In the middle of a rainstorm, these warthogs are like, we ain't scared of no water, we'll fly in it. I know. Wow, keep going. And now that we mention warthogs, I think it might be interesting, you know, in the real far future to actually do an maybe episode. do an episode on that, well, since it know, is designed to be a tank killer. Well, they every pilot that I've ever talked to about the warthog said it's a flying tank. Yeah, I, I think we can get away with that. I, yeah. think, I think our listeners will let, let we'll us see. do a warthog. We'll never run out of stuff to talk about, I'll guarantee you. No doubt. The Iraqis were firing back with no effect. You could see they were engaging us, but their rounds were falling short, said Sean Dorfman, another platoon leader. Distinguishing friendly forces was the biggest challenge for American forces during the fighting. The only American killed in action was a 20-year-old cavalry scout, Specialist Clarence Cash, whose vehicle was hit by a friendly tank round and, and that's a sad thing it and, is and our hearts go out to this poor guy but here's all these abrams moving as hard as they can going yeah. as fast as they can and, and they're firing and yeah. unfortunately we have some friendly fire yeah, yeah. that's always tragic yeah that really stinks too i mean but you know with all that going on and everything going on well give us some bound idea. to happen let's Give me some ideas on the Iraqis. Yeah, the Iraqis suffered far worse with only a few fighters fleeing or surrendering. Most died in their vehicles. When American forces moved forward after the battle, they were told to close their hatches as Iraqi ammunition cooked off. More than 100 Iraqi tanks and armored vehicles were destroyed, according to reports at the time. Basically, these tanks uh, we talked about cooked off before, that's when there's fire in, in there and it's hitting the ammunition and causing the ammunition to explode. So the Abrams crew and everything that are going through there, they're saying, hey, button up, which is to close your hatches because there's shrapnel going off. So they said a few Iraqis, you know, ran away and stuff like that, but everybody else didn't make it. Wow. Let's finish this up. Yeah, a ceasefire went into effect the next day across Iraq and American forces were out of the country weeks later. Uh, their taste of battle had been brief and complete. Retired Army General Montgomery C. Meggs, who commanded 2nd Brigade at the time, said his tankers training in Germany, where they drilled speed and accuracy to fight Soviet bloc forces, easily eclipsed the skill of the Iraqis. They just weren't able to play at our level, he said. Again, uh, me and Russ have been looking at some of the technology coming up, and uh, I think the other day we were looking at uh, walking tanks where they're actually talking about it looks like a robot. It's got legs and arms, yeah. but it's got missiles. And, you know, I think somewhere down the line, you know, 50 years from now, uh, when people are listening to these old podcasts, they're going to go, these guys kind of knew what was coming, but... Now they've got drone tanks. Just the incredible stuff that's going on and um, the technology. And it's it's kind of scary, you know, to know that we're going to have that type of firepower in the future. But uh, like I said, anything to give 
our side the advantage, you know, our allies the advantage. Exactly. And again, like we were saying, we're going to do an episode on what we believe the future of tank battles and tanks are going to go. Um, we do have some information on some of the tanks that, you know, the military is buying. I think that'll be a good episode. I agree. I agree. Now, for us, this was kind of a short episode, but very informative. Studying research in this particular topic I mean, with the T5 and then the one we actually seen down there at Fort Benning. Really amazing stuff. It is. Yeah, um, like always, um, don't forget to leave us your feedback or comments on Facebook. And if you haven't liked us on Facebook yet, the Two Tankers and the Cat podcast, make sure you search for us and, and like us on there. I know probably over the last couple weeks, we've had the increase of about 25 likes on there. Facebook is about the best place right now um, to get any announcements. Mainly, that's where I'm putting the show notes now. Now, does that have our phone number, too, on our Facebook? Not outright. What is our phone number? Our phone number, um, so that you can actually leave us a voicemail. That way we can include your comments, questions, anything in our next episode of our podcast. That phone number, 1-785-380-9844. I'll repeat that, um, 785-380-9844. And like I said, if you call in... Got any questions, comments, anything you want to say? We'll actually include that in one of our next episodes. All right. That sounds awesome. Well, uh, I think that w- this has been a good episode. Until next time, this is Charlie. And this is Russell. Happy taking. And as always, have a great day. Dang, kitty cat. You have been crazy tonight.